Welcome to the Padres Chair, an insightful commentary on everyday life presented by Dr. Tim Schroeder. Sometimes controversial, always reflective, the Padres Chair will nudge you to consider current reality through the lens of time-honored truths found in the Holy Scriptures. The goal of each podcast is to cause you to wrestle with the impact these ancient truths have on your own life. Here's Tim with today's topic. It is possible that we will never have another opportunity like this in our lifetime. The pandemic has pressed pause on almost everything we were accustomed to. All activity, all spending, all plans, all routines, some would say all fun. Nothing is the way it always has been. Not the way we worship, educate our children, recreate, entertain ourselves, socialize, or even nourish our bodies. All routine has been interrupted. And when this pandemic comes under control, and it will sooner or later, we will all have a choice to make. Will we go back to the way things were? To what we often call normal? Or Will we seize this moment to make the corrections we always dreamed of making? Make no mistake, this window of opportunity will not remain open forever. No one knows exactly how long. The best guess is that for approximately the next three or four months, you'll have an unprecedented opportunity to recalibrate your life And then, while the opportunity for change won't suddenly disappear, it's a pretty safe call that as regular activities resume, it's going to become increasingly more difficult to make adjustments to our way of life. I'm Tim Schroeder, and for several episodes in this podcast series, I just want to talk with you naturally and practically about how to go about the task of recalibrating life. How does one seize this unparalleled opportunity, this unique season, to create a preferred future? I I don't claim to be an expert on recalibrating life, but I have stumbled on an example in the ancient scriptures of someone who is. And we're going to study his technique, mine it for whatever it has to offer, and then apply his insight to our own recalibration projects. And I'll say right up front that I hope and pray you not only join me for the entire series on this theme, but that the results of whatever changes you choose to make will be deeply beneficial and rewarding for you. Now, today's episode is the inescapable starting point for recalibration. And I think the title pretty much gives it away. Ruthlessly Evaluating Current Reality. Years ago, the the great theologian Popeye used a phrase that upon deeper reflection contains a lot more insight than I think the cartoonist realized. Popeye would look at a scene of injustice or inequity or danger, and after processing what he saw happening right in front of him, he would blurt out, That's all I can stands, I can't stands it no more. Well, tucked away in the recesses of the Older Testament of the Bible 
is an account of Popeye's great-great-great-great-grandfather. Feel free to insert as many greats into that sequence as you want. A man named Nehemiah took a look at the plight of the people he loved, at the state of disrepair of the city he loved, and it just broke his heart to the point he vowed to do something about it. That look, that broken heart, that can't-stands-it-no-more attitude is something a friend and mentor of mine once termed holy discontent. And in my opinion, it's the essential starting point to all meaningful change. The level of brokenness around us exists in increasingly focused concentric circles. I wish we were live and in person, and I could just draw this out on a whiteboard for you. But on a macro level, the outside ring of the circle, I think few people would deny when they look at that outside ring that our whole world is broken. COVID, racism, depression, lawlessness, entitlement, narcissism, you name it, globally, havoc has been wreaked on the beauty and quality of life we all long for and our Creator designed us to experience. Then, moving inward to the next circle, closer to center, life much closer to us is also broken. Financial stressors have spiraled out of control for many. Healthy family ties are direly threatened, and and even normal human decency in our own workplaces and communities is, is increasingly eroding. So not only is our big world broken, but in many cases, our our close-knit communities and family units have suffered a significant state of repair. I mean, my gosh, we need need special days to remind us not to bully vulnerable people. Then, as the laser focuses more tightly right on the center of our life, the, the bullseye, in that innermost circle for us, things like internal peace and a manageable pace of life, the the enjoyment of life-giving relationships and a, a calm meaning and purpose to life, something the Jewish culture refers to as that blessed state of shalom, has become a rare luxury not currently experienced by the most of us. And I know I can't speak for you, But as I look at this cocktail of brokenness in every circle of life, I can't stand it no more. But that discontent begs a very important question of me. If I can't stand it, am I willing to change it? Not everything. Some things are fine the way they are, and some things are admittedly beyond my control. But am I willing to change the things I can and recalibrate my own life? And I think that the timeliness of this question simply cannot be ignored, because let me repeat my opening statement one more time. It's possible that we'll never have another opportunity like this one in our whole lifetime to make those changes. So, just to whet your appetite, to get you dipping your toes in the pool of recalibration, let me begin this series by suggesting three prerequisites for change. Now, they're not going to bring about the total change and recalibration all on their own, but they are necessary preparations 
without which meaningful change won't stand a chance. So, if you're ready, here they are, the prerequisites to recalibrate your life. Number one, you've got to allow your heart to be broken by current reality. The state of disrepair of the circles we just described has to break your heart before you'll be moved to do anything to change them. Now, let me take a, a few minutes and paint the scenario in which Nehemiah found himself. For some of you, this is old hat, but I know many of you who track this podcast uh, don't have a long history in understanding the Bible. So let me just set the stage for you. The date is about 445 B.C., in other words, it's been about a thousand years since Charlton Heston, masquerading as Moses, led the people out of captivity in that event known as the Exodus. And then, when they got established in their new country, which we often call the Promised Land, a horrible cycle began. When times were good, they'd forget all about God and, and they'd start doing their own thing. They'd worship whatever idols they felt like worshiping. They would party life away. They would abuse one another and take advantage of the vulnerable. And then when the consequences of that would hit and hard times would come, then they'd cry out to God for help. And he'd hear them and he would help them. And for a short time, things would get better. And then in the good times, they'd forget him again, and they'd screw up again, and the hard times would come back, and they'd then cry for help. You understand the cycle. It's pretty familiar to most of us. Now, skipping over a whole lot of history, we come to one of the most significant downturns in that cycle, where this same nation who had been set free in the Exodus was now captured again by enemies. And the people were hauled back into captivity. Long story made short, the Assyrians were involved and the Babylonians, and then ultimately the Persians defeated the Babylonians. And so by the time we get to our text, the Israelites now had a new boss called Persia. And this is the scene into which Nehemiah enters. He's a Jew who had been born and raised during this period of captivity, and he's living in Persia in the city of Susa. This is modern-day Iran-Iraq territory. And Nehemiah has a fascinating job. He's the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. Now, cupbearer is a little bit of a misnomer because what the job really entailed is that he got to eat and drink the food and wine before it was given to the king so that in case someone was trying to poison the king, Nehemiah would get it first and then the king would be kept safe. In other words, Nehemiah would come home at night and Mrs. Nehemiah would say, Hey, how was your day, honey? And he'd say, I'm still alive. It was a great day. Then one day, and you'll find this in the Old Testament book, which carries his name. It's Nehemiah chapter 1. He received some visitors from the home country. And they went over to Starbucks and had a chat. And Nehemiah started to quiz them about how things were back home. How were the people doing? the Jewish remnant who had survived the exile, and, and how was the sacred city of Jerusalem? And then it happens. This is straight from the Bible. They said to me, we read, they said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. And the walls of Jerusalem are broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. 
When I heard these things, writes Nehemiah, I sat down and wept. The people in the sacred city were broken, and so was Nehemiah's heart. Now, let me give you a spoiler alert and fast forward to the end of the story, because as a result of this disastrous news, Nehemiah acted. And ultimately, he went to Jerusalem. He shook everyone out of their complacency, and he rebuilt not only the walls around the sacred city, but the morale of his people. But it all started with his heart being broken by the news of the devastating conditions. In fact, if you keep on reading, it says he was so distraught that he not only wept, it says, for some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Paraphrase? He said, I can't stand it no more. It, it had been 13 years since the exiles had started returning to Jerusalem. You know what happens in 13 years? You get used to the way things are. The horrible situation doesn't break your heart anymore. You, you grow immune to broken walls and burned down gates. You grow immune to intense poverty and starving children. You, you just get used to it but not Nehemiah. When he heard the news, it ripped his heart open. And I'm suggesting that that is the essential starting point to any real change. I'm suggesting the beginning to any real recalibration project is to take a ruthlessly honest magnifying glass look at your life and to see the areas that are shattered, but perhaps to which you've become accustomed, to which you've grown numb and complacent, and as you look at them to become so dismayed by what you see that you just refuse to tolerate the shambles any longer. Boy, those broken areas, um, there are so many of them. It may be that you need to go into your garage or your basement and take note of how many empty liquor bottles have accumulated and knowing that during the pandemic, you've not had a lot of company. This isn't the result of crowds of people coming to your house. This is evidence of your drinking, which has gotten out of hand. Or you might need to walk up and get to the top of the stairs and find yourself totally out of breath and just let it hit you that climbing two flights of stairs shouldn't debilitate you that way. You've let your unfitness get way out of hand. Or maybe you need to study that stack of bills or go line by line through your visa account and realize that this isn't because you lost your job or have a legitimate reason for bills to pile up, but rather that you've taken to the escape mechanism of spending to the point that it's caught up to you. Or maybe you open your phone and, and one of those pictures pops up of a really happy time with your spouse and children, but the date shows that that was two years ago. And suddenly a sick feeling wells up inside you because your family dynamic isn't at all happy anymore. And you know you've done nothing to change it. Or a, a situation comes up in your community and a young person who's embraced living the Jesus way wonders out loud, man, I wonder how Jesus would respond to this. And to your shame and embarrassment, it's been so long since you've read one of the Gospels that you can't think of a single example of how Jesus would act in a similar situation. Brokenness in your life circles needs to break your heart to the point you declare it intolerable and determined to initiate change. 
when we, when we moved into our home 25-plus years ago, there was a door leading into our kitchen that had a cracked pane of glass. And as we walked through that house with our realtor, I immediately saw that that window was cracked. And, and, and I thought to myself, man, if we buy this house the first week or second week at most, I'll get that fixed. You know where I'm going with this, don't you? 22 years passed. We simply became so accustomed to the brokenness of that piece of glass that it wasn't until a major renovation project, when the door was removed, that that broken pane finally got dealt with. I don't want to do that with areas of my life that matter a whole lot more. And so to become repetitive to the point of annoying you, I want to say it again. It's possible we'll never have another opportunity like this in our lifetime to make these changes. So what do you see around you and inside you that breaks your heart? Those are the points where recalibration stands the greatest chance of success. All right, let's keep going. Second prerequisite to change. You've got to accept your contribution to the problem. This would seem so obvious that it wouldn't even merit mentioning if it weren't for the fact that almost all of us are experts at finding someone or something other than ourselves to blame for our broken circles. Nehemiah heard how broken Jerusalem was, and we've already read it. He wept and mourned and fasted and prayed. What we don't realize when we read this, unless we've got an ancient calendar in front of us, is that that level of brokenness went on for four months. And in that time of mourning and fasting and praying, a very distinct tone started to emerge in which Nehemiah would take responsibility for this situation. He confessed his sins. He confessed his family's sins. He confessed Israel's sins. He, he doesn't blame the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Persians. He takes ownership. Verse 7 is part of his prayer. He says, We've acted very wickedly toward you, God. We've not obeyed the commands, the decrees, and the laws that you gave to Moses. Both me and my family have sinned. The situation is bad, he said. It's terrible. And guess what? We caused it. It happened on our watch. Wow. I'm not very good at doing that. And can I take a guess that you aren't either? Things go wrong, and we blame government, we blame the medical system, we blame the police, we blame the schools, we blame the church, we blame the neighbor, we blame the neighbor's cat. Like anyone we can think of, before we look square in the mirror and address our own contribution to the brokenness in our lives. Now, let me just press pause for a second. Do governments, medical systems, police forces, schools, churches, and many other agencies play a role? You bet they do. And everything possible needs to be done to ensure their responsibilities are being addressed. But the starting point for my recalibration is with the guy who looks back at me in the mirror every single morning. A while back, a long while back, when we were the proud owners of a little dog, I was out walking her one day, and as I was returning home and approached our yard, I noticed some newspapers and garbage the wind had blown into the shrubs in front of our house. And this is horribly embarrassing to admit, but without even thinking about it, the first thought that crossed my mind was, what a mess. It's like someone ought to clean that up. So somebody should do something about that. 
And no sooner than that thought registered in my mind, it hit me hard. It was my house. Those were my shrubs. Who exactly did I have in mind who should do something about it? It is such a natural inborn tendency to see a wrong, to see a problem, to see something broken, and assume that it's someone else's problem. I won't recalibrate my life in any meaningful way until I take personal ownership of whatever contribution I've made to the way things are. It is an absolute prerequisite. All right, one more. Prerequisite number three. You've got to summon the courage to take the risks necessary to change. And let's get this right out on top of the table. It does take courage. Nehemiah chapter 2. We're given the date, which has led some to conclude that it was sort of a New Year's festival that was going on. That's a little bit of speculation. But what we do know is that Nehemiah was present to present wine to the king. And one thing you need to know is that in that era, certainly nothing like this exists in modern times, I say with my tongue firmly in my cheek, everything revolved around the king. The only person who really mattered was the king, the president, or the prime minister. And those who served him... They weren't allowed to have their own opinions or feelings or emotions on display because it was all about him. (laughs) Only back then, right? Well, in that setting, it happens. Because the king looks at Nehemiah and he says to him, this is my paraphrase, like, why are you so down in the dumps? You're clearly not sick because if you got sick after tasting the wine, you wouldn't be giving it to me. But here you are presenting me with the wine, and so if if you're not sick, you must be depressed. What's wrong, Nehemiah? And here we have this unusual circumstance of a king asking the servant why he's feeling down. At that, chapter 2, verse 2, Nehemiah says, I was very afraid, I guess. In that day, he could get killed for being sad in the presence of the king. But at least now it's on top of the table. And so Nehemiah begins to spill his guts to the king. My city, my homeland, the place of my family's graves, it's desolate, it's, it's broken down, and I'd like to fix it. And summoning all the courage he possesses, he said, Well, will you let me go? Will you please send me to restore it? And then with a a surge of more courage, he says, and and will you send letters of support along with me? And then realizing that he's now on a tremendous roll, he says, and and how about, O king, that you pay for the project because I'm going to need timber from the king's forest. This is from a cupbearer to the king. And that is exactly how change happens. When we admit our own brokenness, we then face our part in it and then courageously declare that we're going to do something about it and ask anyone and everyone to help us. Friends, I don't know. I don't know which of your circles is broken today. I don't know what images have popped into your mind 
as we've unpacked the beginning to this story. But I do know this. It's possible that we'll never have another opportunity like this in our lifetime to recalibrate. Everything in life has been placed on pause. And now as we get ready to resume what we call normal, we get to choose what that's gonna look like. So let your heart be broken where it needs to. Face the part you play in the way things are and summon the courage to do whatever you need to, to invite change. This past year has interrupted the flow of our lives. And with that, that interruption has come a lot of pain, loss, and hurt. But also with it has come an unparalleled opportunity. Don't miss what that has to offer. Thank you for joining this episode of the Padres Chair. We hope that you found it stimulating as you consider the role God plays in your everyday life. If you find the Padres Chair helpful, then please pass it on to others who you think will appreciate it.